The following is a recording for Kuban Tunisian on Tuesday, July 19, 2016 at 9 a.m. Central Time. Excuse me, everyone. We now have Mr. Balong Saab on the line to start the call. Please be aware that each of your lines is in a listen-only mode. At the conclusion of the briefing, we will open the floor for questions. At that time, instructions will be given if you would like to ask a question. I would now like to turn the call over to Mr. Saab who will offer some introductory remarks and facilitate the discussion. Mr. Saab, you may begin. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Bilal Saab. I'm Senior Fellow and Director of the Middle East Peace and uh, Security Initiative here at the Council. Uh, I have the distinct pleasure to moderate this morning's members' call and introduce our two speakers, Mr. Michael White and Ms. Jasmine uh, Al-Gamal. I'll say a couple of words about them in a minute. Uh, a lot has happened in the world over the past week. Uh, France was rocked by another terrorist attack in the coastal city of Nice that killed more than 84 people and injured hundreds of others. Uh, there was a failed coup in Turkey, a key Muslim-majority nation that is a major part of the anti-ISIS coalition. And Washington is inching closer to deepening its uh, tactical cooperation with Moscow against ISIS and the Jabhat al in Syria in what many see as a controversial attempt to boost the campaign against uh, all terrorists uh, operating in the Middle East. Uh, all of these issues, I suppose, will be discussed in this week's ministerial meeting here in Washington, which I suppose also will have a quite a heavy agenda. Uh, there's been a ton of excellent work on ISIS in Washington's think tank community, uh, and we here at the Scowcroft Center have sought to gain new insights on the issue and better evaluate the anti-ISIS campaign by using a game-theoretic framework of a strategic interaction. Uh, in many ways, it meant that our primary focus was systematic analysis of the uh, strategic setting. In other words, we explored how the group's preferences and courses of action are influenced by those of the coalition and vice versa. Um, in that regard, we ran uh, three simulations on ISIS, uh, the findings of which can be found on the Atlantic Council website. Our work on ISIS, of course, complements our uh, large body of work on regional security, uh, U.S. security and defense strategy in the region, and America's relations with its Gulf partners who are playing an uh, important role in the anti-ISIS coalition. Uh, the United Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East has also been leading a Middle East strategy task force under uh, bipartisan co-chairs Madeleine Albright, of course, uh, former Secretary of State, and Steve Hadley, uh, former National Security Advisor, to address the underlying causes of instability and underdevelopment in the Middle East, which we all agree helped give rise to terrorism and militancy. You can kill ISIS just like you killed Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but until you deal with a broader set of political and economic challenges that have bedeviled the region for generations, another ISIS could easily emerge. Before I turn it over to our speakers, uh, let me just say a couple of words about them, and we're so lucky to have them with us this morning. Uh, Mr. Mike Weiss is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Brent Kokrop Center. He is the co-author of New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. You can also buy the revised and expanded version of his book, which was just released in April of this year. Mr. Weiss is also a senior editor at the uh, Daily Beast and a contributor to CNN and is a regular guest on Wolf Blitzer's Situation Room. Anderson Cooper, 360, and CNN Tonight with Don Lemon. 
Ms. Jasmine Ogamaz, also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Center, where she focuses on the role of alternative narratives in countering violent extremism. She uh, previously served at the uh, Pentagon as the uh, special assistant to three undersecretaries of defense for policy and was the country director for Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon at the office of the Secretary of Defense, working with Bob Gates, Leon Panetta, Chuck Hagel, and Ash Carter. I've said too much, so without further ado, Mike, why don't you kick us off with some brief remarks on the anti-ISIS coalition's progress in light of recent events across the world. You have roughly 10 to 15 minutes. Please go ahead, Mike. Sure. Thanks a lot. Um, so I thought I'd start with the most uh, newsy developments, which, of course, is the Turkish coup. And what everyone seems to be asking is, will this have an impact on the coalition war? Uh, Inshalik Air Base was offline briefly on Saturday. The electricity was cut, uh, but coalition sorties have resumed. I'm a little more pessimistic, though, about uh, things going as swimmingly as they did before, which, of course, they did not go swimmingly, given the, the level of U.S. and Turkish cooperation in the war. Um, to start with, the, the use of four refueling tanker jets or planes from Inshalik for the purposes of perpetrating this coup should be very, very worrisome. Uh, essentially, the entire Turkish command inside the airbase uh, was working on behalf of a rogue element within a NATO government looking to violently topple that government. And these are planes that they were fueling up alongside U.S. aircraft on the same tarmac. Uh, I think that's going to have lasting repercussions. I've talked to my colleague Aaron Stein at the Atlantic Council about this. He tends to agree. Added to which, the dragnet that the Erdogan government has now put in place to round up suspected plotters and Gulenists uh, has snared some uncharacteristic or unlikely customers. Uh, this includes the now former commander of Turkey's second army, which is a very sensitive uh, position in that it, it controls all of Turkey's border regions and, and is in charge of per prosecuting the war in Syria, also the war against the uh, PKK in southeastern Turkey and the Kangil Mountains of Iraq. Um, you'll have seen, perhaps, by, in The Guardians, a very good TikTok uh, hour by hour of the, the coup on Friday night that one of the earliest victims of the coup was the senior most uh, counterterrorism official against ISIS. So I think this is going to lead to uh, some very negative impact on how the coalition uh, coordinates with Turkey. Uh, Minbid, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Inshalik, you'll, you'll recall, also was the uh, headquarters for the very hard-fought negotiation about the forthcoming operation to liberate Minbij. It's an operation that's underway now. The coalition is making progress. But one of the, the sticking points, of course, is this is an Arab town, and the Turks do not want uh, the PYD essentially running it, much less incorporating it into their creeping Rojava or Kurdish statelet, uh, you know, uh, project. Uh, and the coalition seemed to have cut a deal whereby a, an Arab-dominant military council would assume responsibility for governing Minbij. I'm, I'm less inclined to think that deal might stick, uh, just given the level of paranoia that we're seeing from Erdogan and, frankly, the, the rather dangerous uh, degree of anti-Americanism. Uh, given that so many in EKP think that the U.S. is somehow behind this coup. So, I mean, I, my broad takeaway on that is watch this space, but uh, I'm not as sanguine as U.S. defense and policymakers uh, and CENCON is about this. I think we're, only see we're in early days. Now, just a broader, just kind of, you know, unfocus the microscope a little bit and give a broad uh, overview of the war. Uh, there has been progress made. Um, 50% of the territory ISIS held in Iraq has now been liberated. 
Uh, about 20 to 30 percent of the territory they had in Syria has also been retaken by the coalition. Um, the problem I'm seeing uh, at the territorial level is that ISIS is down but not out. Uh, it has lost its ability to sack and hold large swaths of terrain, but it has not lost its ability to wage discombobulating and opportunistic attacks against the forces that have come in to essentially replace it. Uh, we're seeing this in Diyala province where the uh, level of terrorism conducted by ISIS has, has uh, risen by an order of magnitude. Uh, obviously, you know, devastating uh, car suicide bombings in Baghdad. They're resorting to the insurgency-style attacks that characterized them in the 2003 to 2005 period. Uh, and that was concurrent with their brief attempts to hold uh, and, and, you know, in their own inimitable, inimitable fashion, govern areas like Fallujah and Mosul, but in the presence of 100,000 U.S. forces on the ground, which we haven't got in Iraq. They're also exploiting um, the cure, if you like, uh, which is the, the very nasty sectarian, competitive sectarian nationalisms that are competing for the pieces of the pie that, that ISIS has now relinquished. Um, you know, we've, we've seen Shia militias in Iraq conduct campaigns of ethnic cleansing and pogroms. About 600 Sunnis who fled Fallujah have been disappeared. Uh, many of them are suspected killed by the Hashd al-Shabi. Uh, the coalition tends to downplay the extent of it, uh, but if you talk to Iraqis on the ground and some Iraqi security officials, they're very, very worried about the day after. You know, once ISIS is routed from the country, who essentially will have taken control? Will this be a, a Hezbollahization effect in Iraq? And, of course, now, um, you know, the war that, that is raging between the, the Sadrists and the Abadi government uh, for essentially dominance over the Shia political establishment is, is deeply disconcerting. In Syria, where ISIS has had uh, some of the most success, uh, rather counterintuitively and alarmingly, is in the south. Uh, they have managed to create a rather organic network of ISIS loyalists, ISIS supporters, uh, in an area that was, frankly, uh, inhospitable to them for, for many years. This, this was, in the jihadi context, more Nusra terrain than ISIS. ISIS has taken over a lot of the Nusra franchise there. Two uh, separate Islamist movements have all but become um, de facto brigades of Daesh. In Dera. Uh, they're still able to uh, mount incursions into the Reef Dimashk area, particularly on the back of the decline of Jaysh al Islam, uh, which followed in the uh, assassination, of course, of, of their commander, uh, Zaran Alush, by Russian aircraft several months ago. Uh, Palmyra and uh, the broader sort of Homs government, they're still putting up a fight. Uh, the Syrian regime has actually lost some of the terrain that they managed to, to take away from ISIS in that, uh, that sort of creeping um, campaign after Palmyra to move into Topka Air Base and, and, and push eastward towards the Raqqa region. Uh, there was a disastrous, absolutely disastrous raid conducted by the uh, new Syrian army, which is to say uh, a Pentagon-trained rebel uh, counterterrorism strike force uh, into Abu Kamal. Uh, a couple of weeks ago. The details of that I'm, I'm actually still learning, but suffice it to say, there were no embedded uh, coalition special operations forces in that raid. And it was about 150 Arab rebels facing off against several hundred ISIS guys who knew they were coming. And it wasn't quite the uh, red wedding that ISIS liked to present in its social media and its propaganda, uh, but they managed to kill about five uh, rebels and commandeer a lot of the U.S. supplied materiel and gear. 
Um, so that, that was a, a Bay of Pigs style fiasco, and I think a lot of it actually had to do with hubris uh, on the part of, of U.S. defense planners, but more, more on that uh, anon. Moving now to the international scene, because um, obviously this is a major source of concern, uh, the German axe-wielding attacker, an Afghan refugee, um, I actually, I had thought this was going to be one of these ISIS-inspired attacks. It looks more like an ISIS-directed one. There's video of him that's been put out by the Hamas news agency, the ISIS uh, propaganda portal, showing him uh, pledging allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and looking very much the operative. Um, and I can tell you, based on interviews I've conducted with ISIS defectors, including from their security services, that Germany uh, has got a big bullseye painted over it. Uh, so does, of course, France and Belgium and the U.K. Um, when it comes to the United States, I think the conventional wisdom here holds. I don't see teams of ISIS cells being dispatched back from Raqqa or Mosul, uh, infiltrating the refugee waves, of which there are precious few uh, coming into the United States, of course, and then conducting some well-coordinated and planned operation. I see it more like the Omar Mateen phenomenon uh, or the San Bernardino phenomenon of people who are already radicalized uh, and looking for a banner or a cause. Um, the new phase in this lone wolf uh, style of attack are people who frankly aren't even Muslim or aren't even necessarily Islamist, but are psychopaths or losers or disaffected members of society who see ISIS as a world historical movement and say, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, let's make that our rallying cry. Let's make that our, our, our ideological uh, sort of, uh, you know, banner movement that we can attach ourselves to, to, to write our names into the history books. This is what ISIS wants. Uh, this is part of the Adnani injunction in September 2014, uh, where he called on all Muslims and with a wink and a nudge, not even just Muslims, to uh, kill the kufar, kill the infidel by whatever means necessary. Drive over him with a car, such as a niece. Uh, take a knife, stab him in the chest. Take a rock, smash his head, and, uh, shoot him with a pistol. These are the things that we have to worry about in the United States. And in, in a sense, it's more dangerous because as I say, there aren't uh, networks or cells or sleeper agents that can be tracked. Uh, these are people who are sitting in their mother's basement watching Anwar al videos or, you know, playing around on Telegram and decide they want to make a pressure cooker bomb or, better yet, just go out and buy an AR-15 and shoot up a school or a college cafeteria. Um, but this is to say, look, I, I, I tend to disagree with the analysis that says ISIS is losing, this is all just sort of the death throes. They are... They're, they're metamorphosizing yet again. I, you know, I've, I've mapped four distinct stages of this insurgency since it was founded in 2003-2004. The latest is what I've called the Europeanization, um, reliance on non-Arab, non-Iraqi, and non-Syrians to have with to almost total autonomy capability to plan and carry out uh, devastating terrorist attacks. Some of them are spectacular, some of them are small-scale gun and bomb or gun and knife attacks. But this is what we're seeing. Uh, are they preparing for the loss of their, of their so-called caliphate? Yes and no. Um, I, I still think they're pretty dug in and entrenched in the Euphrates River Valley. I'm not optimistic that Mosul will be, will be retaken, certainly within the uh, remaining period of the Obama administration, nor am I optimistic that Raqqa and the parts of Deir Zor will be retaken. So as long as they can hold that Briar Patch region, which is really their heartland and where they derive most of their constituent power. Um, they still have a, a base of operations. They still have a symbolic uh, nation state, as they, they conceive it. 
by which they can proselytize, propagandize, and inspire a lot of uh, nasty and unpleasant behavior around the world. Mike, that was absolutely terrific. Uh, let me turn it over to Jasmine, please. Thanks, Bill. Um, just to follow up on what Mike was saying, um, he, he gave a pretty comprehensive view of what we're doing kinetically, and then, uh, and, and then I think the point that I want to focus on um, is the new direction that we can expect uh, ISIL to go that very much goes along with the attacks in Nice and Brussels and, and, uh, and Paris and so on. So as Mike laid out, the counter-ISIL coalition is doing in Iraq. And ISIL knows that it can't compete with that. So what we'll likely see uh, is ISIL continuing to shift towards, rather than asking Muslims to travel to Iraq or travel to Syria and to join a physical state, they're going to be asking Muslims to disrupt and try to destroy the fabric of the societies in which they live, which actually is a much easier and much more cost-effective process for ISIS, especially when it comes to their recruitment efforts and the time that it takes to foster a relationship with individuals, whether it's over Skype or sending them stuff in the mail and um, trying to convince them to go over to Iraq or Syria. Now they can just issue a directive in a magazine or online and provide very loose guidelines like drive a truck into a crowd or run over people with your car or whatever, and then, um, and then followers, supporters, sympathizers have something to go on um, that's actually not too difficult to do. Much, much easier, obviously, than trying to travel all the way to Iraq or Syria and potentially getting caught. So this is a very deliberate strategy. You know, these attacks, in, the attack in Nice, the attack in Orlando, seeing these attacks as one-offs or lone wolf attacks, although they are in a sense because they're not planned as part of a, of, of a group or, or a, a deliberate um, cell. But it's actually a deliberate strategy on the part of ISIS to destroy the fabric of these societies and to divide Muslims in the societies that they live in, particularly Western societies, um, from their fellow citizens, creating uh, sort of a cloud of fear and suspicion um, that, that um, will allow ISIS to, to recruit um, even more successfully. So while these attacks, I think, raise serious questions about counterterrorism strategy and tangible things that we can do in terms of protecting our borders. For example, uh, French President Hollande extended a state of emergency for three months. I mean, these are things that we're going to see in response to these attacks and when it comes to defending uh, uh, our homeland. But the equally important question that this begs is how will Western governments and their citizens respond to an increasing fear of Muslims in their societies? Uh, not just immigrants and refugees, but actually citizens of those respective countries as well, um, like the Orlando attacker, for example. And what makes this even harder for us to deal with is that these attackers, like the one in Nice and Orlando, had previously not exhibited any signs of radicalization or allegiance to ISIS. And so it's not just that we should be, you know, ISIS wants us to not just be afraid of people who are, going out in the street or writing on, you know, their Facebook accounts about how they're pledging allegiance to ISIS and how great ISIS is. But they're trying to say, no, you should be aware of any Muslim, period. They, it doesn't matter if they've exhibited allegiance. It doesn't matter if they've said anything. As long as they're Muslim, they have the potential to do this. And so 
that's not something that we can respond to kinetically. That's a much more complicated and much more complex part of the war um, that we're fighting right now, and I think it's something that we're still grappling with as a government. Um, but it leads us to focus a lot more on the narrative aspect and, and um, yeah, the narrative aspect of, of the war, which, which um, the Global Engagement Center, and I want to talk about that for a couple of minutes, uh, is focusing on. So uh, the, the meeting tomorrow, um, the Global Engagement Center, which is run by Special Envoy Michael Lumpkin, uh, who I actually worked for at the Department of Defense when he was acting undersecretary for policy. Um, he's been very, very big on trying to um, focus on partnerships, content, data analytics, and interagency engagement when it comes to fighting the narrative war against ISIS. And so the Global Engagement Center will be sending a representative to the ministerial to brief partners on what their plan is and what they're doing and try to get support from our coalition partners on the narrative aspect, <clears throat> asking them what they can contribute to a campaign, whether it's in terms of content, analytics, providing credible voices, etc., with an eye on an effort in September particularly. So what the Global Engagement Center wants to do is get our partners to think about what they could contribute in a way that allows everybody to build upon one another's efforts each bringing their comparative advantage and expertise to the table, and then get ready for a September launch where throughout the entire month we will be um, each deploying our own efforts when it comes to countering ISIS in the narrative space. So the campaign itself aims to mobilize a public-private network to amplify the counter-ISIL messages of the coalition, particularly to, tar to target sensitors uh, among Middle East youth and diaspora communities, diaspora communities. Um, and I think that they're really excited about this effort, and I think that um, what they want coming out of this conference is to have uh, really tangible commitments and ideas from their partners uh, for September. And, you know, I just want to add that Secretary Carter has always believed in the fact that this war against ISIS is not just a kinetic war. It's not something that we're going to win on the ground. And I know that several people in the administration have said that, but he's particularly said that as the missions evolve and as the situation evolves, we have to be ready to bring all elements of our power to this fight. And so even though he's hosting these defense ministers tomorrow, he will be talking about the political and economic efforts that we need to deploy in order to complement our military efforts not because the defense ministers themselves are going to be able to do anything about political or econ efforts, but so that they can go back to their respective countries and their respective counterparts and foreign ministries and so on and get them to join this uh, comprehensive, multifaceted effort um, against ISIS. So I guess I'll stop there and see if you have any questions. Thank you, Jasmine. Uh, we have a lot of folks on the line, uh, so I'll just ask two brief questions, uh, and uh, I will take advantage of the uh, brain power that we have on the line. I have a couple questions that I personally actually am curious to hear some answers uh, to. Uh, and, and if I could please ask the operator uh, if we have any questions from the audience uh, to provide the instructions for them. Yes, sir. At this time, we'll open the floor for questions. If you would like to ask a question, please press the star key followed by the one key that is star one on your touchstone zone now. Questions will be taken in the order in which they are received. 
please be sure to introduce yourself when you're asking a question. If at any time you would like to remove yourself from the queue, please press star 2. Again, that is star 1 if you would like to ask a question. Thank you. Uh, I, I had a broader point about this, uh, this debate that we had. What happened in the Badabad when we captured the Salman Laden and the documents that were quite rich that told us a lot about what the man was thinking and what the strategy was, or at least the grand strategy that was behind Al-Qaeda, or at least the, the central uh, uh, party organization. Uh, it told us in many ways, and it put to rest that debate that leadership mattered, and that leadership had a huge role in orchestrating um, the spectacular, meaning the major attacks that were happening across the world. Um, for a long time, we had this debate whether Osama bin Laden even knew about the spectaculars, but, but boy, those, those documents pretty much put the rest of that debate. And now we're facing the challenge of ISIS, where in many ways, uh, we have very little evidence of Baghdadi himself even knowing about what happened in Nice, knowing what happened in Istanbul. Um, and and I, we all, we all can sense that this, this poses such a a new and much more fundamental challenge to counterterrorism agencies, uh, and and it just brings to light the many limitations of the strategy of prevention. So, what I would love to ask is, um, how does this new uh, uh, terrorism threat um, presenting new challenges to counterterrorism agencies in the world, and, and in what ways would it considerably differ from what we had regarding Al Qaeda? Because we all know that you can't stop everything, but at least you can put a premium on trying to prevent the major ones, the 9-11, the Mumbai attacks, and the many other false plots uh, uh, that were happening under the reign of Al-Qaeda. Uh, how can you do something like that in this day and age of ISIS actually now being the top dog in the jihadist universe? Mike? Well, um, yeah, that's a good question. With, with respect to what, say, a Baghdadi knows and, and doesn't know, I mean, I, I agree, Nisa probably was not on his radar. Um, I would imagine Istanbul was. I know for a fact that Paris was, because the guy who helped conceptualize that attack um, was subsequently promoted to the head of the Amn al-Karji, which is the ISIS foreign intelligence branch. And he is a native and a Frenchman, born in Toulouse. We don't know his legal name, but the French security uh, agencies are calling him Abu Suleiman al-Faransi. Now, last I heard, Abu Suleiman was making a break for the Turkish border because uh, he was fleeing from the constricting uh, or the coalition constricted Minbij pocket. He, he, he lives in Al-Bab, one of the three towns and major towns in Aleppo that ISIS controls. And he and his family were uh, supposedly arrested by the Turks uh, somewhere near Azaz. I don't know if that's true. But the point is, this guy's a European. And he was, uh, he was appointed to head up what is effectively ISIS's CIA. Uh, absolutely had a hand in Paris, most certainly had a hand in uh, the Brussels attack, uh, knew the Paris attackers, all 10 or 11 of them. Um, and again, this, this points to, to what I alluded to earlier, which is the Europeanization of this movement. That's something we never saw with Al-Qaeda. Uh, with Al-Qaeda, it was about dispatching agents uh, you know, around the world. In some cases, you had inspired people, uh, particularly by al-Waqi. But here you have European nationals effectively becoming security chief of an organization that has uh, hitherto been governed and run, particularly at the level of intelligence, by Arabs, 
and principally, at least in the last mm, five to six years, Syrian and Iraqi Arabs. All of this is now changing, and it's changing because of the what I what I would call the jihadi international. Uh, ISIS, yes, it begins in the Levant and Mesopotamia, but it does not end there. If you look at their propaganda, the black flag envelops the world. And if you listen to Baghdadi, you know, inshallah, we will conquer your Rome. Uh, and they're not so far away from Italy, given their, their uh, kind of fallback base that they've established in Libya. Um, this is the difficulty. You know, it's, it's, you do not need to have central command uh, be cognizant of or have a direct hand in every small-scale attack. Uh, driving over someone with a, with a car, that's, that's, that's not something that the sure council is going to bother itself with. Using uh, chemical weapons to, you know, detonate some dirty bomb in uh, in Bruges or in in London, sure, they don't have a hand in that. But um, you know, again, for the for the purposes of the United States, I'm a little less worried about uh, leadership uh, when it comes to attacks outside of the Caliphate region. Uh, Baghdadi is still very much in control of the organization, um, from what I've reported, from what I've heard, from reliable sources. He was wounded in a U.S. airstrike, although uh, we weren't aiming for him. We just got him in, as part of a convoy that, that consisted of another high-value target, and he took several months to recuperate. Uh, he's now mobile, but still not 100%, but he, he was always copus mentis, and he never lost sight of, of being the man in charge. If he's killed, um, is he replaceable? Don't know, to be honest. Um, I would not have thought in 2006 that the franchise could survive the death of Zarqawi. I'd be wrong about that at that point. Uh, it did, and it, it survived it by reinventing itself. So, again, you know, to what extent is Baghdadi sort of the last gasp of ISIS as it existed from 2010 until now? Uh, to what extent is his death, in a way, uh, going to facilitate the transformation or the transition of this into a new style organization, one that consists more of Westerners? I don't know. It remains to be seen. But I, I, I do not think. I, I agree with. Uh, with John Brennan, and I agree with Leon Panetta, we're, we're talking about a decades-long fight here. Uh, and it's not going to necessarily be called ISIS by the time we're done with this. Jasmine? Yeah, I completely agree with that, Mike. It's not necessarily going to be called ISIS. We don't know what it'll be called. But the reason that this war has been so difficult for us um, to forge with this non-state actor that's so capable of morphing so quickly and adapting is that it's not necessarily just a kinetic war. It is an idea. It's the idea that Muslims don't belong in certain societies or certain types of Muslims don't belong in any societies. And how do you fight an idea like that? Um, certainly not kinetically. But what we're, what we're struggling with, and I think the challenge moving forward, is how do you defeat an organization that doesn't necessarily need a leader to provide specific examples? I mean, it's not like the U.S. government where in order to write one talking point you have to clear it with five levels of leadership, um, it's, it's, a, it's a huge imbalance. And so I think what, we're, what we've seen the U.S. government try to do and other governments and what they're going to talk about at this ministerial and in the meetings that Secretary Kerry is going to be holding as well is how to shift our efforts to be more agile, more innovative, more tech savvy. How do you create a global network of credible voices that counter the ISIS message and that say, actually, Muslims do belong in these societies. Actually, this is not the way to go. Actually, we don't need to, um, you know, uh, 
ask Muslims to prove their loyalty or to, uh, you know, or to prove that they're um, this or that. I mean, that's exactly what ISIS wants us to do. But it's how to develop a group of credible voices that can be ready to counter these messages um, in a way that allows us to be just as agile and just as innovative as ISO is being right now. Uh, let me tie it back a little bit also to policy. And uh, Mike, you mentioned the uh, uh, stages uh, that the movement has perhaps gone through. And uh, I, I was wondering if you envision a stage sometime in the future where as a result of continuous shrinkage of its territory or the so-called caliphate, ISIS would uh, feel compelled to uh, transform into a uh, completely underground uh, movement where its sole business is to focus on uh, terrorism uh, across the world and those that really uh, um, would lead to um, large numbers of casualties. Uh, is that something that you would envision? So far we've heard numbers like the caliphate has, uh, has been shrunk by 10 to 12 percent. If we hit the stage of 50% or something like that, do you see that as part of its evolution sometime moving forward, or will they continue to link the uh, caliphate, because it's so crucial to their narrative, to what they're doing, what they seem to be doing quite successfully uh, in terms of terrorist operations across the world? Well, I mean, they, they've been down before. You know, in, in 2009, 2010, you know, the joke was, uh, you, you talk about an emirate, uh, well, you, you, you know, this is the emirate of the cow patches in the countryside because they've been so flushed out of uh, population centers in Iraq. Um, you know, I, my concern, though, is shrinking the caliphate to, say, 50% of its current size in Syria and Iraq doesn't mean that they still won't have, have colonial outposts, if you like, in Yemen, Libya, Afghanistan, Sinai Peninsula, and elsewhere. Uh, what's important for them is they do need some access to, uh, to infrastructure and heavy industry. I mean, you know, judging by what's been uncovered in um, Fallujah, you know, the car bomb manufacturing plants that they had, had repurposed from whatever existing industry was in Fallujah, they needed that to, to wage these devastating attacks in, in Baghdad. So if they go into, you know, the, the, uh, the rural areas or into the kind of um, Euphrates River Valley places that, frankly, nobody cares about, I see that their capacity to do harm at a local level will somewhat uh, diminish. But look, um, when we're talking about foreign operations, it's, it's not all that hard. You know, Nice is a, was, was as low-tech as it gets. All the guy did was rent a, a, a tractor-trailer, right? Um, right? It's easy to buy a gun in, in the United States. It's easy to buy an assault rifle in the United States. It's easy to, frankly, buy an assault rifle in Belgium and then, you know, through cleverness and, and clandestinity, smuggle it across the border and shoot up a, another country in the Schengen zone. Uh, and that's what they're, they're going to rely upon. But look, there's no, there's no question. I, I quite agree with Jazz Jasmine, and this is another thing that I probably should have talked about. Um, one of the reasons we're in a more dangerous period now than we were after 9-11 or in the, the early years of fighting al-Qaeda is that uh, ISIS is also capitalizing on, frankly, the nervous breakdown of the West. Um, the rise of Pujadist, xenophobic, authoritarian political actors, both here and in, especially in Europe and in Russia, um, the, the, uh, essentially the, the anathema uh, that has been cast upon Muslims 
treating them like fifth columnists or enemy agents or, or uh, you know, guilty until proven guilty uh, in terms of, of waves of migration, or legal or, or uh, you know, humanitarian in nature. Um, this is what they're counting on. You know, they were cheering Marine Le Pen's seemingly uh, come from behind victory in the regional elections in France a few months ago. They would love nothing more than to see Donald Trump president with what the stuff that comes out of his mouth and then the policies he might may or may not enact. Um, and that has, that has helped convince, that has helped sell the conspiracy theory that there is the land of, of, of unbelief and the land of Islam, and only they are the true custodians of the land of Islam. Uh, you know, the, the coalition, in a sense, is a gift because, you know, all of these Tagut uh, Arab regimes they're at war with anyway. So and it just made it easier because we've linked up with them, such as Jordan, uh, to some extent Turkey, uh, Saudi, Qatar, Kuwait, and so on. Um, and again, the other component here is, is the cure, if not worse than the disease, just as debilitating or only, you know, very nearly so? Uh, you know, what I see and what worries me about U.S. policy planning is, you know, yes, it's good that we're not putting troops on the ground. Nobody wants an occupation of Syria and Iraq. But when you are leaning on somewhat dodgy sectarian nationalist actors who are not, who are either not part of the majority population in a country or are very much the majority population of a country and are looking to exact revenge and retaliation for crimes visited upon their community, this is going to be a problem. You know, uh, Kurdish nationalism in Syria and competitive varieties of Shia nationalism or Frankly, Shia transnationalism, if it's the Iranian Khomeinist uh, contingent in the Hashd al-Shabi, this is very dangerous, uh, and it is going to invite ISIS's return, either under the same Salafi jihadi flag or under a different guise. You talk to Iraqi Sunni politicians, and they say, you know, even if Daesh is expunged from Mosul and it's completely eliminated in Iraq, it's not going to put an end to Sunni revenge and Sunni nationalism and Sunni, uh, you know, sort of the ideology of grievance. That has been more than anything else, more than faith, more than, you know, uh, Ibn Tamiyah or the management of savages. That has been the main driving cause for why ISIS has, has enlisted so many in its ranks. Yeah, just to follow up on what Mike said, um, you know, I, ISIS has never uh, really, they don't, I, I think we overstate sometimes the importance of territory. I mean, as much as we've made incredible gains in fighting them on the ground, like, they don't need a state um, to operate. They don't need a state to recruit. Osama bin Laden created an unprecedented global movement based on just the idea of a caliphate. ISIS took it to the next level by actually creating a caliphate on the ground and talking about it and asking people to come join it. But in a perverse kind of way, the gains that we're making on the ground and the position that ISIL finds themselves in right now um, it actually is helpful to them because it helps them um, with their narrative of, you know, the fight, they're fighting the good fight against the imperialists, they're fighting against the Zionists, they're fighting against America, and they're under siege. And that actually makes them much more attractive to people who would potentially pick up arms to support them because if they're under siege, then they need help. They need help, um, you know, uh, Beating, um, beating the U.S. and its allies. So I think the territory thing is less important than the point Mike uh, br brought up and, and what I talked about earlier, which is this narrative of, um, you know, Muslims don't belong in the West. You either belong with us, and if you can't come to us, then destroy the societies, uh, you know, that you live in. 
and um, statements from Donald Trump, whether it's Newt Gingrich or Donald Trump or Marine Le Pen or Geert Wilders or any of these people who are saying the same thing um, are just incredibly damaging and I think do just as much uh, damage as, uh, as ISIS's recruitment strategy or whatever statements they put out as well. I mean, I have to tell you that I just, like watching the Republican National Convention last night, I just had this image of ISIL leadership just sitting there watching it like it was a Super Bowl party or something and thinking, like, what a great thing. This is amazing. So the narrative part is extremely important and I think shouldn't be understated just as the territory aspect should not be overstated. Uh, if, if both of you were uh, invited to the ministerial meetings happening in Washington and you were given the opportunity to um, provide a 10-minute briefing or piece of advice to these uh, heads of state or foreign ministers and defense ministers. She has three or four bullet points in terms of different allocation of resources in the campaign, uh, uh, different points of emphasis, things that have been done wrong, reducing some gaps. What would those be? Mike? Um. Well, again, you know, the beware the, the law of unintended consequence. You know, just because you're defeating an in, one insurgency doesn't mean you're not inadvertently giving rise to, to other ones. Um, I, I see this as too narrowly focused uh, as a counterterrorism policy and not really focused as a geostrategic policy. Um, you know, ISIS is in many ways a manifestation of, Look, uh, you know, not to be too grandiose, but, but really, it began with the Iraq War. This is this is the end, the, the collapse of, I think, the modern nation states of the Middle East. Uh, I don't see Iraq being put back together again, despite whatever happy talk we, we see emanating from from CENTCOM or from uh, the State Department. I mean, you know, look at what Mossad al-Fatah has been able to do in the last several weeks: sacking, invading, and sacking parts of the Green Zone twice. And, you know, calling a demonstration that, that threatens to topple the Abadi government. The, the economy is in tatters. Uh, and again, you know, ISIS, I, I quite agree with Jasmine, like, even in defeat, they can al always claim a moral victory. You know, 600 uh, men and, and women and children rounded up in Fallujah uh, and, and disappeared into some dungeon to have uh, drill bits uh, driven into their skulls. That, that is straight out of the Zarkawis playbook of 2004, you know, how do you, how do the Sunnis regain, uh, you know, Baghdad, how do they regain Iraq? Well, they're outnumbered by orders of magnitude, so it's all about unleashing hell and genocidal violence against the Shia, and the Shia will then radicalize and come after the Sunnis, and the Sunnis will have no place to go but into the fold of AQI slash, slash ISIS, ISIS, excuse me. I feel like a lot of the lessons that were hard learned in Iraq have now either been forgotten or simply dismissed because the the uh, the cost of re-implementing them is deemed to be too high. With respect to Syria, I mean, this is kind of the original sin of this administration. Um, you know, I read a very good report by Thanasis uh, Kambasis, I, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, at the Century Foundation, which, which sort of gives the lie to the idea that, you know, in between whole-scale invasion, occupation, regime change, and do nothing, uh, there exists no, 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 no spectrum of options. There's lots of options. Uh, you know, one thing I would say is you need to give Sunni Arabs in Syria uh, a, a tangible sense that the United States has got their back and is concerned about their plight. I mean, Aleppo is about to fall. Uh, and, and for the first time, I'm, I'm prepared to say, I think, I think this city will fall to the regime. And both in, in that fall and in the immediate aftermath, there's going to be a bloodbath. 
and you know the demographic that's going to suffer from that bloodbath. And these are, you know, generations are going to grow up thinking the United States has an opportunity to do something to help them, and it didn't. And guess where they're going to direct their rage? And guess who is going to be the uh, sort of main brainwasher of those, those young generations who have been, been rendered orphans or fatherless or motherless or, you know, they've lost wives and, and, and children themselves? Uh, this is what concerns me. So I think that, look, there has to be a policy of containing the Assad regime whilst negotiating with it and trying to inaugurate some kind of transition. I leave that to other people to decide. But keeping, keeping away the Syrian Air Force and to some extent the Russians from dropping bombs on civilians, that, that is crucial here. Because this is, this is a campaign for, you know, I hate the cliche hearts and minds, but you have to convince this population that, that the U.S. is not about squandering you know, their lives, it's not, does not deem them as somehow less worthy than a landmark uh, agreement with Iran for the purposes of containing a nuclear weapons system. And that a lot of them believe that that, that is the conspiracy, that, that, that the U.S. has essentially forfeited uh, the Sunnis to uh, the rise of the Islamic Republic of Iran in the region. And I, I don't see us countering that narrative. I see policy inadvertently furthering that narrative. Jasmine? Yeah, I, um, you know, I would actually focus uh, on the U.S. I think that, you know, I, I, I hear time and time again people saying, you know, Muslims are much more integrated in the U.S. than they are in Europe. We don't have the Europe problem. We don't need to worry about it. And I agree right now. Um, we don't need to worry about it until we do. So I think that we, the, the, the worst possible thing that we could do right now is take for granted the fact that we have really well-integrated Muslim communities. Yeah, absolutely, we do, but how long do you think that'll last if we keep hearing things like um, anybody who believes in Sharia law should be deported? And to a certain extent, you will not be able to stop politicians from saying things that they say because they're politicians. That's what they do, right? So how do you... Um, how do you do what ISIS is really, I'm sorry, I'm using ISIS and ISIL interchangeably, but uh, how do you do what ISIL is really, really good at, which is just mobilizing ordinary individuals to do their job? How do we mobilize ordinary citizens? How do we support ordinary American citizens in making their voices heard if they want to counter the ISIL narrative or to provide an alternative narrative? So I would definitely say that we need to focus on that we need to provide platforms to people who want to make their voices heard and to speak out against ISIL and its ideology. And we need to find a way to enhance the capacities of these people and help them develop a network in which they can work together to do so. The second thing I would do is urge increased funding for community-based programs across the U.S. that would increase resilience and diversity of our communities. And um, lastly, I would definitely put more emphasis on developing and funding reintegration programs for people, especially youth who have tried to join ISIS or who are demonstrating that, they're, um, that they would like to join ISIS, uh, whether it's through words or actions, and, uh, and work on, on uh, sort of, I mean, for lack of a better word, deprogramming them, reintegrating them into society, finding out why they wanted to join in the first place, what the root causes are, and working to get them back into society as constructive citizens rather than throw them in jail and, uh, and pretend that the problem doesn't exist. Well, I'll take advantage uh, to ask one more question before we wrap this up. Uh, and since Jasmine mentioned the Republican National Convention, and one of the major themes was make America safe again, 
uh, I think it was a French official, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was probably Francois Hollande who mentioned that reluctantly that this might be a new normal in terms of terrorism uh, uh, hitting um, France and perhaps across the world, uh, and so we need to get used to it. Uh, that's obviously easier said than done. And if I were to bring this back here to the United States, um, it's been quite some time since 9-11. Uh, and uh, I wonder if the U.S. public should, God forbid, more attacks like these happen around here, how would that test the resilience of the, uh, of the public, and how would that challenge any future president's policies with regards to counterterrorism? Uh, you know, you, you both know that in many ways, sometimes the reaction to the act itself produces unintended consequences and makes the whole thing so much worse. Uh, how do you keep cooler heads uh, prevailing in such situations? And is the American public, lack of a better word, ready for, God forbid, something like this, a wave of attacks that might hit uh, this part of the world? So, Mike, uh, last few minutes for you, and then I'll go to Jasmine. And if no questions from the audience, we'll wrap this up. Um, well, look, uh, let me be very... Frank, I think if, if you saw something like a Paris or Brussels-style attack in a city such as New York or Los Angeles or Washington, D.C., Donald Trump exactly. becomes president. So uh, are you asking what do we do to prevent that from happening? I mean, you know, look, I, I've been to some degree impressed by uh, what the FBI has been able to achieve in, in terms of their counterterrorism sting operations. You know, people... Uh, kids wanting to go do jihad in Syria and, and, you know, having these fake marriages and then getting picked up at the airport because, oh, whoopsie-daisy, all the time they've been talking to an FBI agent on direct message on Twitter or on Telegram or whatever. But, um, you know, it's the old IRA saying you have to be lucky all the time. We only have to be lucky once. You know, ISIS, from what I've heard from sources inside the organization and sources who have recently left, are making a concerted play to try and recruit members of the Somali diaspora community in Minnesota, people who have been m more loyal to al-Shabaab in the past, but now see ISIS as the vanguard jihadist force. So if, if they got enough of these al-Shabaab or former al-Shabaab guys together, um, and, you know, just of their own initiative, maybe with a little international financing, uh, they managed to take hostage at school or do a Newtown, Connecticut-style massacre, but under the banner of ISIS. Donald Trump becomes president. Uh, and it doesn't matter because the American people at that point will be so terrified that they'll just want somebody who gets out there and says, you know, we're going to bomb the bastards, carpet bomb them, drop a nuke in Raqqa, and that'll be the end of it. Um, and I, I don't have an answer for you because I don't, I, I don't know what, you, what we can better do, you know, to educate the electorate or to, to show them that it's, it's far more complicated. I mean, I was listening to, to Rudy Giuliani's speech last night, um, which was, Julian, I mean, I'm from New York. I, I lived under his mayoralty. That was him at his most bombastic and demagogic. And I kept thinking, you know, a lot of non-Republicans are going to gel to this um, because people are terrified. And people in my family are terrified, and I, I, I give them the skinny before I even write it in, in, in the Daily Beast. Um, you know, there was a point a few months ago where I said on, on air on CNN that I won't travel to Western Europe for the time being because I'm terrified, you know. Uh, there, is no, there is no easy answer to this. Uh, I think we, we've, you know, there, there's something, it's not just about ISIS, too. There's something in the zeitgeist at the moment. Um, it has to do with the rise of, you know, irredentist, reactionary political movements around the world. Uh, and I think, 
you know, um, if if a real loudmouth bigot and populist rises to power, it doesn't even have to be in the United States. It could be in France. It could be in in Great Britain. Um, you know, you're going to see ISIS be a, a main beneficiary of that. And and unfortunately, there is no way to stop it uh, other than you know just do the best you can and try and explain the way the world works to people. Yasmin? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it is, I, I just want to, sh- you know, share something a little bit personal, just a personal story um, really quickly, because I think, I think part of what we could be doing better, honestly, because I do agree, unfortunately, and I hate to say this, but I think we all know, like, this, is, this could happen in the U.S., and this probably will happen in the U.S. I mean, it's happened already, we've seen it with the Orlando shooting, San Bernardino, but um, a truck driver who hasn't exhibited any signs of radicalization previously uh, ramming his truck into a bunch of people, like that could happen here. And I think that the level of fear that that creates in people, including in myself, should not be, um, should not, should not be underestimated and should be acknowledged. I think I, 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 would want, I want to see our leadership in a constructive way acknowledge the fact and validate the fact that people are scared and that there is actually good reason to be scared. So, you know, a few days after the Paris attacks in December, I, you know, I was watching news 24-7. I was actually, you know, I was obviously just feeling real anxiety uh, over the fact that a bunch of people could be sitting in cafes on a Friday night and suddenly get mowed down. I actually had a friend who was in the soccer stadium buying a ticket uh, to go into the soccer match. Um, he's an Egyptian citizen, um, and he was buying his uh, his ticket when he got hit by the suicide bomber that failed to kill a bunch of people inside the stadium but uh, detonated his suicide vest outside the stadium. Um, my friend was uh, extremely gravely injured. Uh, his Egyptian passport um, was lying next to him on the ground. French authorities thought that he was one of the perpetrators um, but in reality, he was just this Egyptian guy visiting his brother in the hospital. Uh, his brother had cancer, and he happened to take time off to go to a soccer match and got hit by a suicide bombing and then got blamed for it, and he's still in the hospital in Paris right now. So, um, you know, this is to say that this affects all of us. We're all afraid, but we need people in leadership positions to tell us in advance, to prepare us mentally, to say this could happen, and, but this is what we need to do when it happens. I still haven't seen people in leadership positions say, this is what we need to do when something like this happens in the U.S. Not just the mental preparation, but tangible advice, tangible instructions for how to come together as a community and how to respond to something that happens in the U.S. Because I think that without that, Mike is exactly right. An attack like this happens here, Donald Trump becomes president, or worse. Okay, uh, I didn't mean for this to be uh, uh, such a dark ending, uh, but uh, it does reflect the severity of the challenge we're facing. Um, I do want to thank both speakers. I learned a lot from this conversation. I hope it was useful for those who have called in. Uh, Mike, Jasmine, thank you so much for your insights, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. You may now disconnect.